Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and today I'm joined by Greg Edwards, pastor, civil rights activist, and Democratic candidate for Congress in Pennsylvania's 7th. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me as your guest, Jordan. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. So, could you start by telling us a little bit about your background and why you're running for Congress? Sure. So, I'm a native of New Jersey and uh, grew up in New Jersey and moved to Pennsylvania about 25 years ago. And uh, my background, in terms of my credentials, I have a, a degree in urban leadership. I have a master's degree in theology and philosophy and a doctorate degree in transformative justice and public policy. And so for the last 20, 25 years, I spent most of my professional vocation building racially diverse, culturally inclusive, and politically aware communities that have intentionally sought to agitate and advocate for economic justice and educational parity, specifically in historically marginalized communities. I've uh, built a reputation at bringing people together across racial difference and around issues that really are impacting the majority of folks in a given community or in a given region. And so uh, when I saw our political landscape and realized that there are very few who are governing the very many and the very many don't have an equitable voice, uh, I made a very bold decision that I would run for Congress. I have never run for a political office before, but certainly I've been political all my life uh, as a member of the African-American and the Latino community who has historically been marginalized. Uh, I figured if it's not me, who, and if not now, when? I counted the cost and talked to a whole lot of folks and did my research and went to candidacy training that was sponsored by several different progressive PACs, made a calculated decision that this year in particular uh, would be a different kind of year because of the administration and because of the policies coming out of D.C. that impact the majority of Americans, uh, that we really needed bold progressive leadership that was unapologetic uh, and that would push back in the face of not just Donald Trump, but also the Republican Party, and also to a certain extent, the reactionary politics of the Democratic Party. And so I decided to run at that time, thinking we were gonna run against Charlie Dent, not knowing that he was going to be primaried, not knowing that he was going to resign several days later. And so it became an open seat, and here we are. Could you tell us a bit more uh, about what you mean about the reactionary politics of the Democratic Party? Well, you know, I, I think that by and large, what we have seen historically is that there is a narrative that is set that is never recalibrated by the Democratic Party in terms of language and in terms of public policy. And so the Republican Party comes out with a platform and the Democratic Party by and large reacts to it. Uh, And we see that time and again, whether it's the Affordable Care Act or whether it's trying to advocate and push for a Clean Dream Act. So instead of the Democratic Party being bold and casting a vision that is inclusive, which historically really is the Democratic Party. I mean, the, the Democratic Party has been the party of the big tent. Historically, the Democratic Party has built these large sweeping coalitions across race, across gender, across sexual orientation, across social economic class. And as a result of that, we got Barack Obama. You know, whether we agree with Barack Obama's policies or not, uh, that is a winning strategy for how Democrats can win. However, uh, by and large, uh, those who are in leadership tend to react 
to the menu that the Republicans set versus saying, actually, this menu, we believe, is better for all of America. Uh, and, we, and we know that when Democrats set the table and when Democrats choose the menu, we know by and large historically that it benefits the overwhelming majority of Americans. You know, it was Democrats, uh, the Democratic Party that gave us Social Security and Medicare. It was the Democratic Party that thought it was important for us to put a person on the moon, to explore space. Uh, those policies and practices came out of, uh, in part, the New Deal, the Great Society, but they came out of the Democratic Party that was able to help America dream. And what we've seen recently, really, is that, Jordan, the Democratic Party is good at doing one thing, and that's really reacting to the Republican agenda instead of setting its own agenda. When we react, uh, we continue to allow the Republicans and those that have extremist views to really control the narrative. And, and I think that that's a losing strategy, not just for elections, but really for America. So what is the agenda that the Democratic Party should be setting? Well, I mean, I mean, I think right now healthcare is a critical issue. I mean, I think, Jordan, that healthcare really is the human rights issue of our time. And the fact that the wealthiest nation in the world uh, has one of the sickest populations due to uh, the divide between the have and have not, specifically around who has adequate coverage to healthcare, is a conversation that the Democratic Party should be leading. We are doing everything we can to stop the Republican Party from holding hostage and dismantling ACA. When in fact, we should have been pushing arguably back in 2009 for a single payer Medicare for all initiative at that time. So the ACA kind of was public policy based upon consensus with the Republican Party. The Republican Party often forgets that it was at the table was brought into the conversation that ACA wasn't done behind closed doors. They may not have agreed with it, but they had input into it. Now we find ourselves reacting to the Republican Party that continues to try to dismantle ACA at every step we take. Medicare for all, which basically means expanding medical coverage beyond 65, that every person living in America from the womb to the tomb would have health care coverage. That's an agenda that's good for an America. That's an agenda that's good for America. It's good for small business. We know that the number one reason why families are going bankrupt is really due to the you know, exorbitant cost of health care. We know one of the reasons why small businesses are going bankrupt is due to the skyrocketing premiums of health insurance companies. And, you know, economists on both sides of the aisle, Jordan, agree that we cannot continue to have this healthcare industry really controlling the health of our, of our citizens. It, it just doesn't make good economic sense. It's not a good economic model. So that's something uh, that I believe the Democratic Party should be pushing for. You know, I also believe that we have not prioritized our children. You know, we don't have universal preschool. And, and we know that the first four years of life are the absolute most critical uh, years of a person's life. And the first four years of life, a child, you know, is learning the acquisition of language and gaining their cognitive abilities and their phonological awareness and they're growing in terms of their social emotional development. And here we are calling ourselves civilized, but not investing in our children by having all of our children 
have access to universal preschool. That's something that I think is absolutely critical to ensure that our children are adequately prepared for um, their their public school education. And, And then, of course, when we are graduating, our students, we're graduating, and many of them are going into institutions of higher education, and they're going into those institutions coming out shackled with debt. So this whole notion of going to college and college being a way out of poverty or a way to prosperity doesn't really work unless we can bring down the amount of debt that students have upon graduation. And and so I think the Democratic Party should not only be pushing for Medicare for all and universal preschool, but I think we should be setting the menu, Jordan, for debt-free college. There's no reason in the world and in this nation why we should have community colleges, why we should be paying into um, state institutions of higher education, already paying for them in part through federal, state, local taxes, and then going to those institutions, taking out loans, which incur debt, and many times the debt that's on the backs of our students is greater than the average annual salary of the same students. So that's a winning, that's a losing proposition. Uh, the other thing is, you know, we need to advocate for raising the minimum wage. You know, in Pennsylvania, where I live and I'm running for Congress, the minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. I mean, for goodness sake. So we need to be advocating at least for $15 an hour. That's that's $30,000 a year. That's not still a lot of money. You know, and in my congressional district, the largest city is Allentown. The average person in Allentown, the per capita income is $16,000. We ought to be ashamed to have the wealthiest nation in the world not at least pass a fair, livable minimum wage of at least $15 an hour across the board. Those issues, those three issues of having everyone adequately covered with health care from the womb to the tomb, having all of our children prepared for their public education experience by giving them universal preschool, then if that young person so desires to go to college, making sure that they're going to an institution that's not going to shackle them with debt, that they can leave that institution and leave that institution debt-free as long as they qualify for getting into the institution. And then having a livable wage job. So regardless of what you do, maybe maybe your pathway is not college. Maybe you want to go into a trade. Uh, maybe you want to go into an apprenticeship where you can become a journey person. The reality is that Regardless of what you do, whether you are waiting on tables or whether you are a hostess or a host, whether you are working in maintenance, $15 an hour, $30,000 a year is not too much of a standard to have for all people living in, in this land of prosperity and promise. As you mentioned, you've done work in transformative justice and public policy. Could you tell us more about that? What exactly is transformative justice and how does that translate into public policy? So my doctorate degree is in prisons and transformative justice and public policy. And, and I took that, that course of study uh, in my doctoral program um, because one of the one of the horrific things about the current climate of our nation is mass incarceration. The reality is that we have spent as a nation and invested as a nation more money into building prisons than we have building schools. 
and and really that notion, uh, which unfortunately kind of is an undercurrent in a lot of our public policy, where we spend more um, on the wrong thing than the right thing. Uh, we are penny wise, pound foolish. We we on average spend two hundred ninety two thousand dollars to warehouse and incarcerate someone and half of that to educate them in a K through 12 public education environment. And so I uh, took this academic route uh, really because in the communities that I work in, uh, the majority of families across the spectrum, across demographics have been impacted by mass incarceration or criminal justice and the issues that are ancillary to that topic. And so we have a direct pipeline because of our inequity in public policy that funnels children and families into the prison system. We need to use public policy as a way to dismantle inequity and create experiences and communities that are whole and healed and are just. And so the concept of transformative justice really means that, you know, when you've been wronged, when you've been offended, whether you are the offender or um, the offendee, that there is a process that can be had that makes communities and persons whole. And the criminal justice system has left most people involved very broke uh, in need of a lot of a lot of healing uh, and in need of a lot of transformation. And so the whole notion of transformative justice and public policy is around using public policy as a mechanism to really set communities back on their feet, specifically historically marginalized communities. So looking more into the prison system, I'd like to talk to you about a very radical progressive criminal justice proposal out there, prison abolition. I don't believe that there are many, any major congressional candidates who have endorsed prison abolition, but it is supported by some major organizations like the National Lawyers Guild, as well as the judicial clerk to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Frank Easterbrook, who came to the conclusion of prison abolition through research finding that prisons are expensive and ineffective. Given the clear failures of the American prison system, do you support prison abolition? I support the dismantling of mass incarceration, and I support the abolishment of any physical structure that locks someone up and renders them disposable for the rest of their life. There, there are times, Jordan, when because of an egregious offense um, or a heinous act or a violent act, that someone must be removed from the community for the sake of the community or a person's safety and perhaps their own. But this notion of building warehouses and then using those persons once they're in that warehouse called the prison in order to extrapolate labor, which is free, that can create a tertiary economy for the community that that prison is in is really, is really beyond uh, beyond dehumanizing. So, so I, I definitely support the abolishment of our current system that warehouses people and doesn't see people as valuable of being restored back to the community inevitably. 
So tying this into the issue right now, there are a lot of criticisms on the left from people of color of mainstream gun control proposals because a lot of these proposals have been found to disproportionately target black and brown folks and not actually get guns out of the hands of the dangerous white men who tend to commit these mass shootings. What are your proposals on gun safety and how do you hope to prevent gun violence without engaging in the carceral state? Obviously, we need a federal ban on assault weapons. That to me is a no-brainer. Only seven states currently have a ban on assault weapons. We also uh, need universal background checks that cannot be remediated when a person crosses state lines. So that the universality of background checks means that the same process that is used for a background check on a person in California would be the same process and documentation that would be used for a background check on someone who is in Pennsylvania, right? And, and, and it's not merely a, a criminal background check. There are a lot of people who have not been convicted of crimes, but who have certain mental proclivities that need to be examined. We need to look at the language and really call it a universal background check. And, and so that's the second thing we can do. I think the third thing we need to do is if someone passes the background check and they want to purchase more than one firearm, you know, I, I think that uh, there ought to be a, an examination of that person's home. Uh, and I would call for, you know, a home safety check. Uh, there, there's no reason, um, you know, why someone, if someone is using a firearm for, for security or for home safety reasons, why someone needs to stockade weapons. So there needs to be some in-home check. I also think that once a person qualifies and passes a background check, I also think that they ought to be required to buy insurance. There ought to be gun owner insurance um, that regulates that person and their use of that firearm. So that if someone uh, is, is, you know, if the gun is lost or a gun is stolen, unfortunately a crime is committed with that gun, um, that that's going to be a situation that's going to come back on the gun owner if not appropriately reported. Of course, gun laws are so laxed in our nation that there are many municipalities um, that don't require a lost or stolen gun to be reported to the police departments. Those things, I think, would help regulate gun ownership in a way that would ensure that if you're going to purchase a firearm for hunting or for safety and security, um, you would not be able to stockade weapons. You certainly wouldn't be able to have access to assault weapons. Uh, you'd have to pay some type of premium for insurance uh, because if that firearm misfired or was involved in a crime or um, and every year that insurance, just like a car insurance, every year that insurance would be regulated and that premium uh, may go up or go down depending upon, you know, one's physical ability and how one has used that firearm over the course of that year. Once the insurance industry commodifies gun ownership, watch what happens to gun sales. It should not be easier for someone to get access to a firearm than a driver's license. I mean, that's just... 
So continuing with the issue of prisons, you are an opponent of prison-based redistricting, which you say incentivizes mass incarceration at the expense of individuals, communities, their economies, and our democracy. Could you tell us more about this process and how this is set to work in the upcoming 2020 census? You know, the, the tertiary effects of incarcerating people. So, you know, if I'm a resident of one town and I, I'm incarcerated, out of that town and I, I go and I'm in another part of the state, another part of the country, that prison is going to be in a congressional district. And those inmates, their bodies are counted in the census um, when redistricting happens, you know, and, and even in addition to using inmates to gain higher numbers for redistricting or drawing congressional district lines, you know, there are many organizations that are able to get access to federal funds as a result of using those bodies and those prisoners uh, in their, in their uh, population demographics when they submit grants for certain projects. So, you know, obviously having that person being counted in their original district, uh, I think would the district of their, of their home, their origin, um, their, you know, their, their municipality and their county um, would be would be more appropriate than having them uh, be counted in the congressional district where that prison is located. And uh, I, I just, I, I think it, it, it just helps to build the prison industrial complex and it makes it much more lucrative um, for communities that advocate for, for, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of impoverished communities and counties that, you know, would love a private prison to come there because it means jobs, it means labor, it means bodies that can be counted for, for financial purposes. Um, so, you know, I'm not a fan of the privatization of prisons. I am not a fan of, you know, using inmates um, as statistics, specifically when the services that those inmates usually get are far less than humane. So looking more into redistricting, until very recently, Pennsylvania was one of the most gerrymandered states in the nation, but the Pennsylvania Supreme Court struck down the GOP gerrymander, and since Pennsylvania Republicans refused to come up with a fair map, the court instituted its own. While this map is fair and nonpartisan, it did force some candidates out of the districts they were originally running in, you included. You used to be running for Congress in the 15th, now you're running in the 7th. What is it like shifting districts? Are there differences between the gerrymandered 15th and the ungerrymandered 7th? Sure. So, I mean, the 15th Congressional District, as you said, was gerrymandered. Uh, it was gerrymandered for Republicans to have preferential treatment and to be able to select their voters. And so literally in some areas, it ran right through towns or ran right around certain towns, made no, made no geographic or, you know, demographic sense. And so this congressional district prior to it being put back into a continuous district known as the seventh, uh, this district uh, stretched over five counties, literally left certain housing areas out of certain cities didn't include the vast majority of where certain pockets of people reside, you know, specifically communities of color, which have historically been disenfranchised when it comes to their vote. Uh, it's uh, now a, a very urban district. Um, the racial demographics have changed. 
And also the political ideology has shifted uh, because uh, there are certain parts of Monroe and certain parts of Northampton, in particular Easton, that are much more progressive, even in terms of their democratic platform than prior uh, in the 15th. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm happy that the people of the Lehigh Valley have an opportunity to have equitable representation as the result of uh, the redrawing of the, the 7th Congressional District. So on your website, you have a section for first-time voters. I don't believe I've seen any other candidates do this. Could you tell us about the importance of bringing in new voters, especially young voters of color? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we've got to expand the electorate. You know, as I said earlier, uh, when we were discussing, you know, how we win, how not just progressives win, but how the Democratic Party wins, we, we only win when we expand the electorate. When we create a table that is long enough for everyone to sit, a tent that is wide enough for everyone to be under it, and oftentimes that means that uh, during general elections, we've got to get out and we've got to knock on doors, we've got to register folks to vote, and we also have got to give certain populations a reason to vote. For a long time, you know, the Democratic Party has left its power on the table by simply relying on super voters and really not expanding the electorate. And so millennials who are oftentimes less engaged need to be re-engaged. There are communities of color whose votes have been overlooked or taken for granted. We need to knock on those doors. And when we do that, we find that most of those folks who are not registered to vote are likely to um, want to embrace uh, the democratic platform which typically is a platform that's very diverse, very wide, and very inclusive. And, and so, you know, when, when the Democratic Party or Democratic candidates don't work hard at expanding the electorate, um, that's a recipe for losing an election. Specifically, if you're in swing districts, and specifically if you are in a district um, that uh, is on the fence in terms of uh, it's political ideology. Uh, the only way for someone to win that district is really to expand the electorate. And so, you know, um, we, we believe that it's not just about winning the election. That's certainly our goal. But, you know, right alongside that, Jordan, is also creating a political pipeline of people who are first-time voters, um, who we've overlooked. And, and while that is extremely difficult, we believe it's the only way for America to give birth to democracy. We continue in the Democratic Party to argue over the same folks who are already registered, or perhaps worse yet, we continue to try to swing Republicans to be Democrats. And you know, Democrats may vote for Republicans, or Democrats may try to run like Republicans and be democrat light, but, but the Republican Party rarely, if ever, votes for Democrats. And so when Democratic candidates run, and they're running and they're not trying to expand the electorate. They're not trying to embrace the new American majority with LGBTQ folks, with black folks, with members of the Latinx community, uh, with folks that have historically been disenfranchised, with white progressives and millennials. Uh, they lose elections if they just rely on those that have voted and then try to get the Republicans to swing. That is a recipe for losing an election. And so, you know, we've taken it upon ourselves to really kind of engage people civically because we know, Jordan, that all elections have consequences. And I think, 
what we're seeing out of Washington, you know, and what we're feeling in Pennsylvania and around the country are the consequences of this current administration. And, and so there's a lot at stake. Yeah, absolutely. And it's great to hear you talk about that as your strategy, because I think, as you mentioned, there's a lot of misguided attempts by the Democratic Party <laughs> and money yes. thrown away yeah. at trying to win over Republicans. Yeah, it, it's, it's just it just really, statistically, it doesn't make sense. It just really, you know, it if you know, it's almost like we're afraid of naming our Democratic values. And somehow we think we're going to win over Trump voters. Now, you know, I'm in a congressional district prior to it being the 7th, the 15th, where this district overwhelmingly voted for Barack Obama twice and then Donald Trump. And so, you know, go figure. But the, but the reality is that when Democrats come out in large numbers, when we expand and increase the electorate, we win. We win. We saw it with Doug Jones in Alabama. And we saw it in the off-year elections in November, that when we do the hard work, um, we might not, you know, outraise or, you know, beat our Republican opponents in fundraising or beat them in commercials. But when we do the work of democracy and make phone calls and when we knock on doors and have thousands of conversations and we allow people to take ownership of issues that impact them every day, you know, what we see is a winning strategy for the Democratic Party. But there's something in us that says that we've got to be moderate. And, and you know, and I, I come out of a congressional district where, you know, Charlie Dent was the congressman who is now retiring, uh, who was able to um, parlay his political ideology into being moderate. Well, the fact of the matter is, you know, people don't want moderate paying jobs. People don't want moderate health care. I don't, I don't know of anybody uh, that wants a moderately good school. And so, you know, there's something oftentimes about many Democratic candidates and the Democratic Party overall that says, if we are bold and courageous, we might scare folks away. And, and so, unfortunately, uh, the Democratic Party has overlooked uh, its base, you know, and its base overwhelmingly. Uh, are people of color. And more specifically, its base is African-American women. Yeah, yeah. So lastly, how can people get involved in your campaign and where can they find you online? So that's a great question. Uh, if anyone is interested in finding more out about me or a campaign, why I'm running and the platform we're running on, uh, I would welcome them to go to Edwards4PA. And that's four spelled out, F-O-R-E-D-W-A-R-D-S-F-O-R-P-A dot com and they can click on all the links uh look at our events look at our endorsements um and participate uh even if they're not in our congressional district uh we are you know we are um excited that we have nationalized this campaign by the number of national and regional endorsements we've received so far so uh we'd love to have folks check out our website Okay, great. Well, thank you again so much for coming on to the podcast today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much, Jordan. And thank you for inviting me on. Yeah. So again, I'm Jordan Valerie, politics editor at Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co. And stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.